them do one move at a time. The U.S. Chess Podcast that explores people and organizations who are advancing our educational mission to empower people, enrich lives, and enhance communities through chess. Our goal is to give you ideas and methods you can use in your own community to help you build chess in your area one move at a time. Make sure to listen to our family of U.S. Chess Podcasts, which include cover stories with Chess Life on the first Tuesday of each month, in which Chess Life editor John Hartman goes more in-depth with each month's cover story, Ladies' Night, which drops on the third Tuesday of each month, and that is hosted by our Women's Program Director, Jennifer Shahadi, and on the fourth Tuesday of each month, Chess Underground, hosted by our Assistant Director of National Events, Pete Karyanis, in which he examines the game's eccentricities, peculiarities, and theoretical novelties. All can be found at the podcast link on Chess Life Online at uschess.org, or by subscribing via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Now, let's welcome our guest to this month's podcast. Our guest today on this June edition of One Move at a Time is F.M. Robbie Adamson, a member of the U.S. Chess Scholastic Council. He has been involved in chess for 40-plus years, both as a coach and as a player, and is currently rated 2315, but has a peak rating of 2447. Robbie was the Denker Tournament of High School Champions co-champion in 1988 and has three IM norms. He is the past president and a current board member of the Arizona Chess Federation and a board member for the Southern Arizona Chess Association. He has served as a tournament director for numerous national and state events. He has been the coach for the Catalina Foothills High School Chess Team since 2004, which has won 11 national titles, and he also runs the Western Invitational Chess Camp. Outside of chess, he is an attorney with over 20 years of experience, and he was our cover subject on the March 2009 issue of Chess Life. In 2019, he was a sponsor of our All-America Chess Team. Welcome to One Move at a Time, Robbie Adamson. Yep. Thank you, Dan. Thank you very much for having me on the show today. Yeah, you're welcome. And so let's let's start. You've got a very extensive chess history. So t- take us back to the beginning. What got you started in chess, and uh, you know what 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 have been some of your uh, fondest memories of having a life in chess? I think well, when I started chess, um, I was at Sam Hughes Elementary, and I joined the chess club, and they happened to have a pretty big chess club uh, in. Uh, at Sam Hughes, and I joined in second grade, if I remember correctly, and I really enjoyed, you know, the competition and and the the program at Sam Hughes was quite extensive. So, uh, and they had they had already starting a lot of success, um, and uh, I just was able to join the join the team, and I was under a coach sponsor was Jim Talmadge, and became just really engrossed in the game. I really enjoyed it a lot. And I ended up playing, um, I ended up just being pretty good at it. Um, and I, obviously when you're good at something, when you're a kid, you want to keep more and more. That was very, uh, I, I just really enjoyed the game a lot. It, it, it just, it was a, it was a good way to get involved with something as a kid where I was allowed to, to be with my teammates and, and just, you know, all doing something common together. So that was a lot of fun. When did someone first say, hey, this kid's got a lot of talent. We need to start investing some resources in him. Well, what's interesting is um, my mom saw that I was pretty good. And so, um, you know, back in the day, uh, in the early 
I guess it was <laughs> the late 70s, um, you know, there were no chess coaches like there are today. Um, you know, there's tons of coaches now. But back in the day, chess coaching was not a common thing. So my mom uh, looked up, went to the University of Arizona, uh, and someone was advertising to be uh, to give chess lessons. And so my first coach was Spencer Lauer, who's a master that still is in Arizona, and he coached me for a while. And um, and it was very obvious that I was, you know, pretty good. And you know, back in the day, I stuck out like a sore thumb because you know, unlike today, where the majority of the tournaments are kids, I was like the only kid. And I was, you know, de decently rated. Um, I hadn't really, you know, taken off, but I was, you know, I was pretty good. Um, and then, you know, I think what sparked everything was um, in fourth grade, I the nationals, ha the elementary nationals happened to come to Tucson. And so I played. It was my very first national event ever. And um, it was eight rounds in two days. So it was four rounds Saturday, four rounds Sunday, which was an absolute marathon. <clears throat> And the rounds were late, so the rounds ended up finishing decently late. Not not acceptable by today's standards, <clears throat> but back in the day, that's kind of how what we did. And I got, I believe, I got sixth in the nation um, as a fourth grader in my very first national event. And so that was that. I think that signaled to my parents that I was pretty good. And then after that, I was hooked. I played in every national event all the way through twelfth grade. Did Did you have any other? activities baseball football etc that were uh competing with you for your interest yeah uh in uh middle i'd say middle school and part of high school was tennis um i played on the uh well i played in the high school team uh for a couple of years at university high school which is where i went to high school um but before that i was going to the uh the racket club which is just a, a place um it was it was like one of the only places <clears throat> in tucson that had a tennis camp and so I played there a lot, and I took lessons there. So I I got decent at tennis also, and I think I think my parents encouraged me to do that because they wanted me to have some act, physical activity uh, besides just playing, um, you know, playing a game, a board game in which you're sitting for many hours at a time. So I'm curious if your experience has been the same with mine about tennis. I, I find that there are an awful lot of chess players who are also tennis players. Is has that been? Your observation as well? Yes, uh, I think there there is a there's a good number of tennis players. But you know what I also notice is that uh, kids are very good at ping pong. Um, that chess players are good at ping pong because of that hand eye coordination. And it's just amazing how many um, it's amazing how many uh, how those skills go together. Um, I I got to uh, you know I, I you know I run my camp every year, which I now call the National Chess Camp, and oh. Uh, we basically brought in, I had a table in my garage that I hadn't used and all the instructors stay at my house. And so we played hours and hours and hours, um, dur during the camp when, when the, well, obviously when the camp was over for the day. And then I also, you know, a couple months, be a couple, like a month before I had done the castle chess camp and I'd never taught there before. And there was a ping pong table. So I played a lot of ping pong there and I was just so impressed at all at the level of, uh, of hand-eye coordination that so many of the kids had. And even the kids who weren't very good still were very, uh, you know, were still very creative in how they um, made shots and stuff. And you could tell they were getting better the more they played. So it was it was really a lot of fun. So what ended up bringing you to Catalina Foothills? Oh, boy. So before I went to law school, um, I had this really, really group, 
great group of kids. Well, actually, I've been coaching since I was 16. So I coached when I was, uh, well, I, no, I'm sorry, I was coaching when I was 14. Um, and I did that all the way through part of high school, but much more in college when I actually could drive and go to some schools that I coached at. And then I um, went to law school and you know I turned my life off basically for a few years. I did code. I had a few privates actually in Sacramento, in California, where I was going to school. Um, but you know, I always had this little itch that I always loved chess, and so and working with kids and and, and just teaching the game. So then I came back from law school and I started um, I started practicing law, and I wasn't doing a lot of chess. You know, I mean, maybe I had a couple students or something like that, but I just had this burning desire to get back into it, and I'm just you know I'm a very competitive person by nature and probably anything that I do. So I had a person I've been working with when, when they were in elementary school. And I saw that, you know, as they were entering high school, because I'd left for a few years, um, were kind of losing interest a little bit. I mean, they were still pretty good. I mean, one, one group won the national title at Orange Grove Middle School. So I knew they were pretty good, but I saw that they were losing interest and there were some, some of the kids didn't like each other. And that was kind of affecting things somewhat. And so um, I decided that I, I talked to a couple of kids and I said, hey, would you like to come back and, you know, try to see if we could be successful at the high school level? And so I knew a couple of kids and then I knew I knew some of the parents of some other kids that were pretty good. And basically, we just kind of came together and I basically told the kids, I said, hey, you don't have to, you know, have to be best buddies with some of these guys, but you can coexist on the same team. And so we tried to bring all these kids together. and. Um, it just worked. Um, I, I don't even, I don't know how else to say it. Uh, we got we got the ninth graders to come back. The junior high nationals happened to be in Tucson that year, so they played in the K nine section and they ended up winning the K nine national title. And then I knew there were some good kids in in the area that were going to Foothills the next year. So we, we you know we went to high school nationals and we were just really really successful. And the kids you know it was like a None, none, other than middle school, when they won the national title once, none of these kids had ever experienced that before. And so basically, um, the kids grew to like each other, grew to like be have a have a healthy competition between them. And it just really took off. What are the demographics of the Catalina Foothills area? The demographics, it's a, it is definitely um, a, a higher, higher um, income area. Um, it, although it is open enrollment, so it does take from all over. I, I think there was a time in which it wasn't open enrollment, but now it, it's for the last, for as long as I can remember now, it's been, it has been open enrollment. So we do get people that, that, uh, you know, commute 20, 25 minutes to, uh, uh, to high school every day. Cause they live, they live in another part of the city. Um, but it is definitely a, a, a good, um, high income area. I'm going to read something. I, I mentioned that you were on the March 2009 uh, cover, and Paul Gold wrote that article. I want, I want to read something that he wrote in there. Um, Foothills burst onto the scene at the 2005 Super Nationals, shocking everyone but their coach by winning the high school nationals over the redoubtable Edward R. Murrow, a New York City team featuring IM's Alex Lunderman and Sal Burchess. It's got to be good memories for you as a coach. Yeah, that was, that was an unbelievable memory. Um, the more, you know, when you put it in perspective, it's even more special um, because winning the first one is just uh, is just such a uh, 
it, it was such a momentous uh, accomplishment. But one thing that our, our players benefited from was a couple of things. Number one, it was their first one, the first high school nationals that they were going to try to win. They were also a little bit, um, you know, they. Did, I don't think that they realized, you know, the magnitude of what they were. I mean, these kids have been playing in nationals forever, but to be playing at the high school level is so much more, um, so much more difficult. And so, what one of the one of the famous stories, and always puts a smile on my face, even as I'm talking, is a couple weeks before the tournament. Um, I gathered the kids cause we met on Tuesday nights, um, at the, at the high school, that was our, our chess club time. And I told the kids, basically, if you guys don't think you can win this tournament, then we should not bother even going. And the kids kind of looked at me a little shocked. And I said, you guys have been working your, your tails off, um, your whole life. And you guys are, have a, have a chance to be very, very successful. And um, I knew it was a, a, a difficult um, task that was facing us, but our kids were so dialed in. And I think that's one of the things that that made that group of kids so special was that they were able to balance the stress um, and, you know, try to come together as one. And, you know, they really supported each other and they really liked each other. And, you know, in high school, one of the hardest things to do is to get kids to you know, high school kids, when, when, when they get to high school, they're more likely to do things if there are other kids that are into it. It becomes less of an individual individualistic sport and becomes more of a team thing. And so when you get t- kids that buy in to the team concept, then it's it's so much easier to get them because, you know, let's be honest, high school kids are torn in so many directions with, you know, academics and sports and any extracurriculars they do, like speech and debate. And so many of our kids that we've had over the years are involved in so many of those things. Um, and the ones that aren't involved in school activities are involved in um, things that they're going out and helping in the community, and they're making a difference in that way. And, you know, the one thing that all of those have in common is it requires your time, which is so valuable, and it requires a lot of dedication. So I think our kids kind of bought into that overall message. And what, what I've been really impressed with is that each of them have found a way to contribute um, uh, in different ways. Well, that makes me wonder, Has can you think of a prime example of a kid who whose life was drastically changed for the better, altered, by specifically because they were on the chess team? Wow. I can, I mean, dramatically altered. I think, you know, in, in a high school kid's mind, uh, getting them to see how others learn is quite, um, I think that's a momentous occasion in any person's life because I think you'll remember it for the rest of your life. Um, I had a I had a student um, uh, named Sean Higgins who taught chess to um, a very, um, very highly, uh, autistic child um, who was in high school actually, but, but he worked with them diligently, and I think I think it made a different a difference in that particular child's life, but it also made a difference in Sean's life because he was able to see, you know, how others learn and you know how you have to be patient with people. Um, I also had another student recently, um, Jonathan Martinez, who works with a uh, who's a sophomore, just finished his sophomore year at high school. And he works with uh, an elderly 
uh, man here in Tucson. And uh, I think he's made a difference in him because, um, you know, older people sometimes don't have any family or don't have any family locally or during this COVID pandemic can't even see people. So being able to have a connection with someone outside the outside their normal world uh, is an invaluable experience. You know, and, and just to piggyback, Jonathan also did a lot of work with uh, the Boys and Girls Club and has worked with refugees. So, you know, he's really given a lot of his time. And I think I think it will make a huge impact in his life. You know, he's obviously younger, so I can't see down the line what it can do. But I, I have every confidence that that will, will have, a, have a tremendous effect. Um, you know, one of the common things I see, we've had a We've had tons of kids on the team, and I've and I've also seen this nationally of kids that go to the library and they teach free classes to to high school students or to middle school students or elementary or primary students. And you know that kind of giving back is quite humbling, and it really gives gives them a perspective of what it's like. And it's not all about just trying to win the game that you're playing. Sure, that's good for a competitive sound standpoint, but you know long term. Being able to see how others um, see how others feel, think, respond is uh, is just invaluable. Well, that leads us right to my million dollar question because you know the purpose of this podcast is to give listeners uh, strategies that they can take back and utilize in their own communities. Um, so, I'd like to ask you if, if someone listens to this and says, "Wow, I, I want a chess team in at at our school or in our community." Take us through the steps of, of what's needed from the beginning to go from a uh, an absolutely beginning program, uh, and go ahead and take us all the way to a, to a, a national championship. <laughs> Not, no, no pressure on that question, and, and I'll, I'll now sit back for like fifteen minutes while you expound on what I imagine is an intensive process. Well, um, let, let's put it this way: it requires a team effort, no matter what the situation is. Um, I'll, I'll put high school off because that's kind of a different beast because of how funding and all that stuff goes. But I think at, at a basic level, at a, uh, at a let's say we're starting at a, at a primary school or an elementary school or something like that, I, you have, number one, you have to get a, a, uh, a teacher at the school that is interested in chess because you have to have that foothold in the school. You also need to talk to the principal. And make sure that they're willing to support the um, make sure they're willing to support the program and have someone there and show them the values of of chess. Um, chess is becoming more accepted all the time, and people are starting to see the benefits of it. Um, even if it doesn't translate to you know some SAT score, it definitely teaches people to focus. There's no there's no question about that. I don't think there's any dispute about about the the value of of focusing and being able to put your mind to something that's not a video game. So I think you have to have that number one. If you don't have that, then you know your your the, the program might not ever might never get off significantly off the ground. Um, but then of course you have to get kids interested and you have to see teach you know show them the value of the game. Um, and I think that's what starts a really, really successful program. Uh, sometimes in some programs, um, I've never had this before, but I've heard of others that have had this, is that they have to uh, talk to the school district or the principal or both about getting funding just in case there's an issue, especially if it's 
income school or a Title I school. So you kind of have to get that kind of backing uh, number uh, on, a, on a basic level. You know, if you can get a, you, you don't have to have, to have a, a quote professional coach, um, so to speak, at a, at, a, at a basic level. You know, you can have many, many programs don't have professional coaches. They just have a teacher um, or a teacher slash coach that just sort of, you know, serves as the, uh, um, as the organizer or coordinator of everything. And, um, and then, and then if the program wants to take the next step, then you have to, have to, you have to get a coach, uh, that help in that department. And I think one of the things that I, I, that's one of my pet peeves is that, uh, uh sh should encourage students to get as much, uh, chess education as they can. And so that means using online resources. That means learning from different people. That means attending chess camps, uh, whether it's online or in person. Um, so I think all of those things are necessary um, to, you know, raise the level of the program. One of the things, one of the secrets, our, our success at Catalina, especially, you know, 2005 through like 2009, 10, uh, in that in that range is that one of the things that I that I was one of the things I think that really really helped was I basically told the kids I said hey if you guys want to try to win nationals I think we should go we should travel to some tournaments together so what we did was uh, I got one of the parents um, uh, Irwin DeSaw was the father Chris DeSaw and Jacqueline DeSaw Jacqueline and Chris weren't on the same team because of age but basically. They went to the American Open every year over Thanksgiving in LA, which was an eight-round tournament. And so they we would get a they would get a group of kids, maybe 10, 12, and they would they would rent a van and they'd drive over to Los Angeles for the Thanksgiving tournament and they'd play those events and everyone was kind of rooting for each other. And I think that really built uh, really built the team camaraderie and that kind of stuff. And of course it then it extended to other events. It extended to events where you know, not just the American Open, but maybe there's some other LA tournaments. So we would try to get another parent to take on students to like a California event or something like that. And then there were like the higher level events, like the World Open or 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 maybe something else on the East Coast. We would that I would take a couple of students to because it was uh, it was a really good way to you know again to raise their level, and especially when it's over the summer when sometimes take a break from chess. But our kids were always working on that. So I think that if you keep if you keep at it um, and try to play as many tournaments and do it together as a team, um, you can really have a lot of team success. Um, it doesn't mean that it doesn't mean that you're not going to have some success if, if individuals go on their own. But it's definitely not the same dynamic, and I don't think it produces the same results, frankly. How I'm wondering once you have an established team in a high school. Uh, or a program in a high school, how important is a feeder program through middle school or junior high? You know, it, a feeder program, uh, I, well, feeder programs in general are huge um, because it's tough for a, uh, a high school student who's a ninth grader that comes in, you know, not knowing the game or being decent, you know, fairly low rated to actually becoming um, really, really good. I mean, we've had some kids that have like, I had, a kid, I had a kid recently that he didn't play. He played USCF like when he was in second grade. And he was like 900. And, uh, he joined our team as a junior, and he went from 900 by the time he finished senior year to 1700, 
which is quite a good jump. Uh, we had another we had another kid that was back on the uh, 2007 team, I want to say, and he was a thousand. And he came up to me after one of the club meetings at the end of the at the end of the year, and says, "Yeah, I really want to get good. What do I what do I need to do?" And so I told him to go to the local chess club. I told him to do some studying. I gave him a bunch of t- tips. And over the summer, he went from 1,000 to 1,700, which is, you know, really, really impressive. Um, I think that that's very common these days, actually, now with high school kids, because they've got so many more resources available to them. Um, back in 2005, 6, 7, you know, we didn't have exactly the same resources as you have today. So I think it's even easier in some respects to get, to get a lot better. I, I imagine you, your team was planning to go to nationals this, this spring. Is, is that correct? Mm-hmm. Uh, could you talk a bit about how the kids have dealt with the loss of our spring scholastic season? Yeah, they were really, really disappointed. I mean, this is something that they, you have to remember all these kids are, not only do they work all year for it, but they've also gotten used to going. So it's not like they were doing something for the first time. It was like something that was very important. And we have a smaller team this year, but, um, but, you know, all of them were, were really disappointed. And the way we've tried to make up for it, it's never going to make up for it. I mean, there's just no way to make up for not going, being able to have a state event, not being able to attend nationals and, and all that. Um, but the way they've made up for it has been able by playing online. Uh, we've had some we've had some online matches against uh, against uh, San Francisco and Alabama and Texas, some Texas, you know, groups within those within those states. We try to do that. Um, we've joined the, uh, there's a, a Southern Arizona Chess Association club in which we have, um, students and also adults who join and they, you know, that's just trying to help fill the void. Uh, I know some kids have done some online camps and things like that. So that's, you know, that's helped some, although I don't think that's happened a lot with our group, albeit, you know, we have a very small group, but I do know that people across the country are doing online camps and, you know, they're, they're having to adjust because, Frank, you know, first of all, they never did online camps before. They didn't exist. I mean, this is sort of a we're sort of a work in process right now and and trying to figure all this stuff out. Everything else is in person. Chess camps were in person. Um, but now uh, it's just it's just different. And so, um, you know, we've had people have to adjust. You know, you can you can either be a uh, mope about it and, and not do anything and just say, oh, this is terrible. Or you can do something about it, and you can just try to do the best you can. Um, I think one of the hard parts, of course, is that kids know that there's not going to be over-the-board tournaments for a little bit here. And so it's hard to study when you know there's nothing to look forward to. Um, and that's why one of the things I always, I always told my students is that, um, especially when they were in like high school and maybe in middle school, and I would talk to the parents about this, is set yourself a goal of what tournaments you're going to play in so that when a tournament is coming up, that you're going to be more likely to get jazzed and prepare for it because you see that there's something there. Those kids taking that same mindset, uh, there is no tournament to play in. I mean, they're just nothing for a little bit. And we'll see if we end up having the uh, the national grades. Um, I certainly hope we have super nationals because that would be awful for you know for the high school students to not be able to uh, – to attend, you know, the, the next national championship, which is the super nationals, which is a big one. So, right. This, this is probably a good time for me to, uh, promote the event that's happening this, this weekend. This uh, podcast is dropping on June 9th. 
June 13th, we have our high school online rapid event, and the registration deadline for this is uh, Friday the 12th. So any of you seniors or, or, or seniors that just graduated, this is an event for you to try, U.S. just try to help make up for the fact that you did miss your spring scholastic season. So, so please go over there and register. You can find the information at uschess.org. And, and Robbie, you, you mentioned, uh, you know, camps being different. You, you've been running the Western Invitational Chess Camp for many years. Why don't you talk about that and what you're doing differently specifically at your camp? <laughs> that, that couldn't be more of a timely question. So I call it, so just real quick, I, I call it the Western Invitational Chess Camp. And I just recently changed the name for 2020 to the National Chess Camp because people were getting confused as to whether they needed an invitation or not. It started out as an invitational chess camp, and then it blossomed into not so much, it's not so much by invite, but it was sort of based on rating. And so it was also for, it was for, you know, kids who were over the age rating of 1500. And um, those students, you know, I ended up getting, I, I ended up developing, you know, a little bit of a niche, a niche in the market. And, uh, and so I've got, I got a lot of kids over 1500. And then I started taking under 1500. And so then it, then it became, I sort of decided that the invitational name was, uh, was not necessary. And so um, I decided, so I ended up deciding to change the name to the national chess camp. And this year I'm actually what, as of, as of yesterday, um, or as of actually as a few days ago, um, I was contacting parents to see, you know, if they were going to attend the camp and I was going to offer it in person um, as uh, you know, I'd been talking to the hotel and seeing what one arrangements could be made. And, you know, based on the attendance, you know, I, I plan to have it in person. If I'm not able to have it in person, then I'm exploring the idea of having it online. Um, Cause I know that some people have uh, done some camps online. Uh, you know, Grant Owen in Charlotte uh, is having hit a camp. And they've been running a bunch of one-day camps, one of which I one of which I taught at. Um, so there is there is uh, it, it definitely can be done. It's just going to be a little bit different. And um, you know, I know some kids won't attend because it's not in person, and I know some kids won't attend if it is in person, uh, just because of the COVID situation. So I, I'm 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 wrestling with that right now as we speak. It's a it's really a it's really tough. It's tough because. Um, you know, the camp experience of going to a camp, you cannot match. You can't match the, the laughs and the, and the, and the, you know, the interaction with other students. You're just not going to get that online. It just won't happen. So again, one, it's just what the online version of things is just different. It's just not, it's just not going to be the same as when it's in person, but you know, we have to make adjustments and we can't, uh, you know, we can't, we can't cry about it. So is there a place people can go now to look up information? Yeah, it's at nationalchesscamp.org uh, is the website. Uh, the old website of uh, westernchesscamp.com is still there, just because uh, people know it as one. But I, I, I did I did announce that I was that I was switching it last year. Um, so you can definitely find out information about that, and obviously you can always uh, send me an e- send me an email at my uh, uh, my email address is on the flyer. Uh, my telephone number is on the flyer. So if people want to find out more information, they can certainly do so. Well, let me pivot a little bit and let's talk about you uh, more specifically. And you, so, you're an estate planning attorney in in your day job. Is that correct? 
Yeah, it's my that's it's my day job. That's my I, I I do I actually love being a state planning attorney because it's always a challenge. It's like a chess puzzle. Every family uh, and dealing with their dynamics is literally a puzzle uh, and trying to figure out what's going to work best. And I think it, uh, I don't know if I got to practice another any other area of the law because <laughs> I think this I think this actually just fits me perfectly. Although it is very it is very challenging sometimes dealing with families and. Can you talk a bit about, I mean, you've already mentioned the puzzle-like nature of it, but can you, has, has your chess life informed your business life in any way? Yeah, I mean, well, chess by itself, you know, one of the, one of the, uh, <laughs> one of the downsides of being a lawyer is you never answer a question the way that you would answer a question if you're not a lawyer, because you're always trying to make sure that what you're saying is correct. And, and it's hard to do that because, you know, in, in life, everyone wants everything to be a yes or no answer, black or white answer. Um, but, but, you know, in life, unfortunately, that's not the case. Everything comes in, in different degrees and there's shades of truth and in, in a lot of things. So, you know, nuanced answers aren't popular these days, uh, especially in politics, because people don't want to hear a nuanced answer. They want to hear either say yes or no. Um, but I think one of the one of the things that has helped me is that you know when you draft a will or a trust you have to plan out what's going to happen and so it's chess chess teaches you to have a vision and always thinking ahead uh many many steps uh one of the things that i have to challenge that i have to um deal with in my personal life in in, in as a lawyer is i have to make sure that i don't go too far ahead because you know you have to do you do have to go step by step and you can't get caught up on step 10 if you're not thinking about steps two three and four and so forth so um but it definitely the, the chess game learning the skills of chess will never you know you'll it, it'll change your life forever it really will and in a related question is when people in your business or personal life find out that you're an accomplished chess player do are they surprised or they go oh that figures <laughs> uh well yes i think it's almost virtually all positive um because some people can say oh i can see that chess brain of yours working like when we're when we're having a client meeting or something like that so yes it, it they 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 are able to they, they do they do notice it and they do compliment it i think it's it's something that uh you know even if you don't end up you know doing chess you know as definitely as much as i have been doing i, I just can't i can't underscore how important the game what what skills the game of chess teaches you and that that critical thinking and planning out and it's just something that you just uh um it's a skill that you're just going to be able to use in so many other areas and one of the reasons i've stuck with it for so long is that you know i really do enjoy it it's uh it puts a smile on my face and i i just i enjoy the whole um i enjoy all the stuff well i enjoy most of the stuff that goes with it you know there's always there's always some things you don't enjoy. You don't like being attacked or, you know, for, for an opinion you have or for a decision that you make. But, you know, that's life. That's going to happen in life. And if you can't handle that, then, you know, you're going to you're going to have a lot of disappointments in life. And I mentioned in the intro that you have three IM norms and you've, you've told me that it's just the rating that's keeping you from getting the title officially. Uh, where does your FIDE rating stand and are you actively trying to pursue that rating so you can get that IM in front of your name? Yeah. So I, I am, I am actively, 
when you say actively pursuing, if I was actively pursuing, I would, I'd go on sabbatical for a year and go get it taken care of. But, um, truthfully, you know, that's just not possible as a lawyer. You can't just leave your profession for a year and just like ignore, uh, the rest of the world and focus on it. It's just not, it's not practical, um, for me to do that. With that being said, though, I am, I am, uh, I still work on my game a lot. Um, I try to try to learn a lot of stuff. I have some, uh, I take some lessons and stuff, uh, from, uh, from people and I, I try to work on my own when I, when I can, but you know, when you have a day job and you've been working all day, it is tough to, you know, come home and say, Oh, let's, let's go hammer out three hours of chess. It's just, it's just very difficult. And I, and I've had a, I've had difficulty doing that. One of the, one of the problems is that I dropped so many points when I was in the middle of a couple of cases. Um, and, uh, this is probably about 10 years ago and, uh, trying to get my strength up and also studying because I took some time off from studying the course. And, uh, and it just, uh, it's very it's very difficult to balance all that stuff and so i think you have to put a priority on things and you have to you know kind of do a risk reward thing um you know i i i want to say that i'm i am strength but um clearly clearly i'm not because i don't have the title um i didn't get the rating up so um you know i think it's i think it's just something that you just kind of have to live with and it's one of my it's one of my biggest inner struggles that i have is that you know, knowing that I may not ever accomplish that, um, you know, short of maybe, maybe I can accomplish it by getting an automatic title or something in an international event or something like that, which I might, which I might pursue. Um, because it's just, you know, practically, I just can't take that much time off, but I am working, I'm trying to do it all, but you know, as you get older, it, it gets even harder. Um, you know, I, I'm not a spring chicken. Um, I'm, I'm, a, I'm about to hit 50 and, uh, and so, so I just I, I just don't have the time to uh, to focus you know 100 percent like I'd like to maybe, maybe if I won the lottery or something I could retire and and then I could pursue it or something like that, like that. but I don't even play the lottery so I don't think it's going to work. <laughs> and another one of your big chess successes was the uh, being a co-champion at the 1988 Dinker Tournament of High School Champions. Uh, what are your some of your memories from that event? <laughs> that those are these is the, this is a great story. And this is something I've never been able to shake, even today. And people make fun of me because I withdraw from tournaments when I'm when I'm not doing well. But in the Denker tournament, um, I remember that I I did tie for first in that event, and um, in I lost round two, I think if I remember correctly, and I was really really mad. I was just so upset, and um, I think this was in I want to say this was in New Jersey. I want to say this New Jersey or Boston. One, one, one of those U.S. Opens. Um, I think it was 85, 86. Anyway, it doesn't matter. But back then, um, I, I lost round two. And so I got mad and I went to the tournament director and I withdrew. <laughs> and, um, and so I went upstairs. My coach was there and he absolutely lit into me. He said, what in the world are you doing withdrawing? You've played two rounds and you're representing the state of Arizona. And what is, what is the matter with you? And so I said, yeah, you're right. That was really stupid. So I, I, I immediately went down the elevator. I went back in the room and says, I'm not really withdrawing. I was just upset. And so they put, they put me back in the event. And so uh, I ended up winning um, 
all my all, all the rest of my games until the last round when I played um, when I played Jesse Cry, uh, who now is a GM. Uh, um, I think we were. I think we were close in rating back then. Maybe I was a little bit higher rated. Maybe I was a little lower rated. I don't remember exactly, but um, he had a uh, he, all he needed was a draw to, to win the tournament clear, uh, if I remember correctly. And so uh, I remember we we played a bishop f five caro, and I just I smoked him pretty. I actually won pretty easily, and um, and so that helped me tie for first. And in some ways, you know, it's a I kind of backdoored, so to speak, even though I beat, I think, the leader, um, because I avoided having to play, uh, you know, Ilya Gurevich, who was a grand, I don't know if he was a grandmaster at the time, but he's a grandmaster now, and then international master Vivek Rao. Uh, they played on another board, and they drew, and so that allowed me, because they, they had, I think I had each given up a draw already. And so they drew each other, and that allowed me to to come back and tie for first. So that was that was really cool because um, I represented Arizona in the Denker three of the four years. One of the years uh, at the U.S. Open in Portland, I didn't play. Um, I didn't want to for some reason. I don't know what I was thinking because I should have played. I, 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 I re- that's one decision I do regret is I won the high school state championship all four years, and that year in Portland I did not play um, because I don't know why. But I played in the U.S. Open and I did really well. But I always regret that I maybe had a chance to maybe win the uh, win the Denker a uh, second time. There's some nice balance here too. I'll mention that uh, Jesse Cry is also wrote our June Chess Life cover story on the COVID crisis and is the guest on our sister podcast uh, cover stories with Chess Life this month as well, which people can can find at uschess.org. I I had a trivia question for you all locked and loaded. I was going to test your uh, your chess player's memory, uh, but you already gave the answer. So I know you know the answer. I was going to ask you what was the opening that you played in that last round against Jesse, and you mentioned it was a caro. And I do have the game score here, and so I will post this game for our listeners on the uh, on, on the show notes. You're kidding. I am not kidding. So, Je- so, Je- so, Je- so Jesse clearly remembers it. <laughs> well, no, it didn't come from him. Uh, it came from oh, our okay. uh, Denker history page, which people can find also at uschess.org. Um, so, oh, get out of here. Yeah. That's crazy. <laughs> so maybe it'll be fun for you to play through it. Je- Jesse is a very, very interesting person. Uh, he's got an interesting personality, an interesting voice. Um, he's just got he's got definitely different perspectives on things, and I think he's a very entertaining person. So I I think your uh, your listeners will enjoy having him. So the the last topic I want to talk about with you is U.S. Chess governance, and you are on the U.S. Chess Scholastic Council. It's a volunteer position. Talk a bit about. Uh, exactly what the role is of the council versus the scholastic committee. Uh, people sometimes get these confused. Yeah. So interesting. I'll, 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 uh, I'll provide a couple of little known facts. So I was on the scholastic committee when I was in college. Uh, there was no council. I don't think back then. And what happened was, uh, back in the day, uh, when us chess was not running the nationals, um, themselves, it was run by outside organizers. And so that's how, um, um, like, for example, uh, Tucson ran the National Elementary in, I want to say, 96 or 97. That was run by Lee LaFries. Um, he did a really good job uh, on that and really ran one of the best, probably elementary events ever uh, by a non-U.S. chess 
uh, sponsor. We we had so many volunteers for that event, and the ironic thing is, it was it was partially my idea to have the tournament, but I wasn't able to be there because I was in law school. <laughs> so I I, I was going to miss out that year. But um, back then, the Scholastic Committee actually voted on the bids that people submitted, and so we were. You know, now it would the political the, the political pressure from the chess world would have been out of out of sights um, that, uh, for that uh, because of how prestigious it is and how potentially profitable it can be, and so we used to really approve the bids. And if I remember correctly, Kim Kramer and I can't remember who else was on the committee, but we we had some uh, we had some very close votes on who was going to host the national championship. And which organizer was going to do it? And back in the day, you know, you had to get all, everything was local. You know, I mean, there, we might hire some direct, we'd hire directors and stuff, but you know, the you know the, the the organizer, so to speak, was the local organizer, not U.S. Chess. And I think that you know one of the things that made that changed everything was that uh, I think that a lot of people saw how well Leela Fries and and so many people on the Southern Arizona Chess Association and all the volunteers. There must have been 75, 100 people involved. And we just ran a top, top notch event. And um, I think people started seeing, hey, why doesn't U.S. Chess do this? And so the script flipped. And all of a sudden now uh, it's the U.S. Chess that, you know, and the director of national events and, you know, they go out to sites and they try to find a site that's going to be compatible and square footage wise and, and all that kind of stuff. So the Scholastic Committee um, has always been there. The Scholastic Council was a creation. I don't remember when it was created, but I believe that Sunil Wiramantri, um from New York uh, created the idea or at least helped come up with the idea of having a Scholastic Council. And the purpose of the Scholastic Council is to uh, uh, handle things that are scholastic related and, and some things, if possible, are delegated to the Scholastic Committee but the Scholastic Council is involved, you know, regulations. Um, uh, I mean, it's involved in so many different things. But, you know, most recently it's been involved in helping trying to deal with the uh, people who didn't have ratings at tournaments, but they had ratings from outside systems. And so uh, an elaborate uh, system has been set up to deal with that. Uh, most recently we've been dealing with uh, how to assign, uh, whether to keep, how, to assign a particular rating to someone um uh for an event so that they're not you know they're not in the wrong if they're, if they're not if they're in an undersection by rating but really their outside rating is much much higher we then place them into other groups so that there's a whole elaborate process and there's so many people involved in that but um i, I think that the uh, you know the scholastic committee um is delegated uh, some responsibilities, but it's not delegated as much as, as I think we'd like. But I think one of the hard parts is that all of this is a vol is done on a volunteer basis. So it's it's really hard to come up with, you know, all of these specific things when, uh, you know, everyone's a volunteer anyway. So uh, the Scholastic Council is involved with a lot of regulations and, and uh, there's a Scholastic Council representative of every single national event. Um, and they report back to the council on the event and all the things that happened. Um, I was the last class of council actually rep actually at the national grades in Florida uh, in 2019, and uh, and so I you know I write a report uh, to the to the scholastic 
council. And so we try to see if we any changes need to be made. And we talk about the good things we saw and the bad things we saw. Um, so and, and each Scholastic Council representative, you know, we, it's supposed to be spread around so that one person will go to national grades, one person will go to elementary, junior high and high school, uh, all girls, um, things like that. So it is a uh, um, it's, it's something that is done on a volunteer basis. We have conference calls uh, once a month. Um, and most, you know, I, I, I've been on the council. I don't know. It's been a while. I want to say six or eight years. And this year's group is by far has put in the most effort and has had the most significant uh, um, print on uh, on things. And I think they've done a really, really good job. Uh, we've had to deal with some very, very difficult uh, issues. Um, we've had to deal with the whole, you know, changing of dynamics between K-8 and K-9. Uh, that was uh, very political and very, uh, got, we got a lot of criticism for some of that stuff. Um, but, you know, uh, we, we followed a process. There was a committee. Uh, it was a cross-section of the community. Uh, we asked people to join, um, to be part of that so they could be part of what's going on. And, uh, and so, and as it turns out, all of that ends up being for naught because we didn't even have nationals this year. So it just, it was, it was really bad. And then we had to deal with that one, uh, that one ugly incident, um, in Texas, uh, where I also happened to be the representative. I don't know why, why, why that had to happen to be there, but, um, where there were some people that had deflated their ratings so they could play in a lower section. And so we had to deal with that. Um, and that was just very uncomfortable, but I think we've, you know, we've had a lot of, uh, I think, I think all what's come out of all of this is a lot of good stuff, a lot of regulations that were, had never been addressed. And I think we've tried to be as proactive as possible in trying to make the national events very good. And I think that, you know, overall, everyone does a really, really good job. I mean, are, are there going to be pro things we regret? Sure. But, uh, I, I, I think overall it's been very, very good. And I think we've, the, the council um, and and the and the and the scholastic committee, for that matter, um, is usually people that run for the council. So people who are active on the committee, or that you know maybe not active in the committee necessarily, but are outside the committee and know they can bring experience, to, you know, bring those people in so they can bring in their insight on that as well. So do I have this structure correct? Does the U.S. Chess Executive Board appoint the committee members and then the committee members elect the council members? The committee members elect the council, but the members of the scholastic, uh, um, there, there's a vote for the scholastic council and they, and they, and we have staggered terms and things like that. But, um, the, the chair of the council is responsible for, um, reaching out and making sure that the, that the scholastic committee represents a cross section of the, of, of things. The EB, the EB, I don't think gets involved in that, although I've never personally been involved, but, um, you know, obviously if there's someone that is a bad actor, um, you know, and the EB knows about it, like, you know, the chair doesn't, then we will add them as, as a member of the scholastic committee. Um, uh, but we try to, we try to, um, the, the goal is to get, people from all over so that they can provide some input as to what happens because what happens in one state in a big state uh they may not know what's going on in a little state and then vice versa the little state may not know what's going on in the big state and so, so it's helps to have those different perspectives 
Yeah. So this has been a very fun, wide-ranging discussion, and I, I want to leave it with one last question to you. Uh, talk about what your vision or dream is of the Scholastic Chess future. I hope that we continue to increase the number of kids that play chess. You know, it doesn't even have to be going to attend nationals or even state tournaments. I, I just think that the idea of playing chess teaches so many skills. Obviously, I would like to see kids compete at a local and state and national level. I think that's very good. I think it elevates everything. Chess has been elevated uh, for quite some time now. And um, and I think it's getting elevated even more, except it's now online. And so I think that one of the challenges will be developing that online structure and online commitment and online familiarity with everything that goes into it, making sure your internet connection is good, that. Um, because, you know, chess is always one of the things that I think have always the chess has suffered from is that we live in the past and it's important that we try to be as forward thinking, look to the future and we cannot, we cannot sleep on things right now. The fact that we're having an online event for the seniors is a really, really good start. And I hope that we can, can continue to increase that presence because that is a huge future. Um, I, I would love, one thing I'd love to see to come back, and I want to obviously have it be under safe conditions, is to have, you know, tournaments again. I mean, it, it's just really, what I don't want to see is people say, oh, I'm not comfortable playing online and um, over the board tournaments aren't happening now, so I'm not going to do any chess at all. That That's where chess to step back. So people have to be as forward thinking as they can. I think people right now, and I see lots of people do this, and I hope more people do it, is run line, run events online, even through your club. You can do it. It's it, it, it's cheap. It's free to do it. Um, chess Kid, you can play on. You can play on chess.com. You can play on Lee Chess. Um, you can play on... Um, you can do online... Um, online uh tactics and watch those i mean youtube has a ton of free stuff um so there's so many things that you can do and i hope that people don't, don't miss out just because there's not an over the board tournament especially kids kids can adapt a lot better than adults can i'm hoping that adults um will find a way will uh find uh, a way to use the online um platform to play because so many of them are just used to playing in person and I think that's going to be one of the biggest challenges uh, for everyone. Well, Robbie Adamson, thank you so much for joining us on this June edition. And thank you also for your volunteer efforts on behalf of U.S. Chess. Uh, all of us uh, appreciate that. And congratulations on the all the success at Catalina Foothills. And thank you for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. I thank everyone at U.S. Chess for trying to balance what must be a very, very difficult time right now. And and, you know, again, thanks for having me on the show. Hey, bye-bye. Thanks. Thank you for joining us on this edition of One Move at a Time, which always drops on the second Tuesday of each month. Our theme music was composed by National Master Alex King of Memphis, Tennessee. Our podcasts are produced and edited by Jason Andre at Seven Season Films Photography and Media. Please visit www.7seasonfilms.com to find out how to start your own podcast. 
Our sister podcasts at U.S. Chess are cover stories with Chess Life on the first Tuesday of each month, Ladies' Night, hosted by Women's Program Director Jennifer Shahadi on the third Tuesday of each month, and on the fourth Tuesday, Chess Underground, hosted by our Assistant National Events Director, Pete Karianis. I hope that you've learned something of value that you can now use to help build chess in your own community. We'll be back next month with another Chess World personality who is helping us advance our mission statement to empower people, enrich lives, and enhance communities through chess.